This is Pastor James Guyo, and welcome to Berean Sovereign Grace Church in Westerville, Ohio. We are a Sovereign Grace teaching ministry, and you can visit our website, www.salvationinchristalone.com, to hear more of our messages, and also go to soundcloud.com and search for James Guyo. My last name is spelled G-U-Y-O, or you can search Berean Sovereign, just Berean Sovereign, and you will see our messages there also. May the Lord bless your hearing, and may he serve you for his sake, for Christ's sake, and for the sake of his gospel. And now to our gospel teaching. But let, let us go before the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Lord, we come before you this morning again to worship you. Thank you, Lord, for who you are. Thank you for revealing yourself to us through your Son. And thank you for revealing your Son to us by your Spirit. And thank you for revealing the gospel of grace to us, Lord. And we just pray and we thank you that you would continue to sustain us by these words of the gospel, that Christ is sufficient for us and Christ is our only righteousness and our only acceptance before you. So Lord, we just thank you and we ask now for your blessing upon your word as we go through the scriptures and to learn more about what Christ has accomplished for his people. We ask and pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This is our communion message number 28, and we are going to be in Luke chapter 1, verses 67 to 79. Luke chapter 1, verses 67 to 79, and this is the prayer of Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, on the occasion of the birth of John the Baptist. Luke 1, 67 to 79. Luke records for us and says, Now his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, who have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest, for you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins through the tender mercy of our God which the day spring from on high has visited us 
to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. The word of the Lord. And for our sermon title, I have titled this sermon, The Horn of Salvation. The Horn of Salvation. Or, <laughs> an enemy and horn problem. An enemy and horn problem. The scriptures testify of Christ and God has been preaching about his son, Jesus Christ, from the beginning and shall do so to the end. And there's no end, which means we shall forever be hearing about Christ. Jesus Christ is the gospel. Jesus Christ is the good news. And the gospel is not what we do with Jesus, but what Jesus has done in his person, in his appearance, in our salvation for us. And God loves to preach about his son. He likes to tell everyone about him. He loves Jesus so much that he has told his story in all of creation, you can pretty much see the imprint of the gospel in just about everything in the creation of Christ. So the scriptures would come and say the heavens declare the glory of God. And when we are talking about the glory of God, we are talking about Christ. Christ is he who is the glory of God. In 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6, Apostle Paul said, For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So the knowledge of the glory of God is in the face of Jesus Christ. So if we are to behold the glory of God, we behold the person of Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ is the glory of God. And he said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And the Father and I are one. That's the language of Jesus. And so I will remind you and everyone that Jesus Christ is God's chief interest. If you are talking about God's glory, you have to talk about Christ. If you are talking about Christ, you are talking about God's glory. And so Jesus Christ is God's chief interest. God is interested in us only as he sees us in him, as he sees us in his son. And only as he conforms us to his image. That is important to understand. God's interest in us is only as he sees us in Christ. And only as he conforms us to the image of his son. And so if anyone has to come to God, they have to look like Jesus. Or God does not want them. You have to look like Jesus. They have to possess everything that is in the man Christ Jesus. 
and they could not do that if they were to remain in the man Adam. God is not interested in the first Adam. He is interested in you in the second Adam. And so, why the second Adam and not the first Adam? Because the second Adam is the son of God and God loves the second Adam more than he loves the first Adam. And God loves Christ so much that there is no one who can go between them. God is jealousy for Christ with a godly jealous. And so he says, he comes and he says of his son, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And guess what? Listen to him. Listen to what he says. And Jesus would also come and say, zeal for your house will consume me. Christ has zeal for his father, for the worship of his father. And in the same understanding, Jesus would also come and say, I am the truth, the way, and the life. And no one comes to my father but by me. You can't go in between myself and my father. You have to come through me. And the son would also say of the father, no one comes to me unless the father draws them and grants them the permission, the right, the power, the will, the desire to come. Otherwise, they don't come. And the son would also say in Matthew eleven twenty seven, 27, all things have been delivered to me by who? By my father. And no one knows the son except the father, nor does anyone know the father except the son and the one to whom the son wills to reveal him. So there is the relationship that God has. The father loves the son and the son loves the father and no one and nothing can go between them. And so the only way that you're going to approach either one is if you are in the son. You have to be in the son. And so Jesus is closing up all the gaps of you or myself or anyone to try sneaking in and coming between him and his father. What is the point? What is my point? Without Jesus, there's only hell between you and God. Without Jesus, there's only hell and nothing else. There's not the pop between you and God. There's not anything that we can put between us and God that will make us safe. We are only safe as much as we are in Jesus. And as much as Jesus is our surety and our mediator before God. And so, if you want to please God, because a lot of people really want to know God's will for their life. <laughs> what is God's will for my life? You go and grow some vegetables and tomatoes. That's God's will for your life. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> no, God's will for your life is to talk about the story that God loves to write and talk about. And you have to be found in the story that God loves to tell. And God loves to tell the story of Jesus. He loves to see Jesus in everything. And that is why Jesus said the scriptures testified of him. So to be a Christian 
means one has given up the desire to want to tell their own story, to build their own story, and to hear more and more of the story of Jesus. So to be a Christian means one has given up wanting to hear about themselves, to stop building their own story, but want to hear more and more of the story that God is telling about his own son. And so to that end, to have faith means to give up on your own story. To have faith means to give up on your own story and to be found in the story of Jesus. And the gospel is the story of Jesus. Creation, both the old and the new, is the story of Jesus. The Holy Spirit gives testimony of the story of Jesus as the Father gives testimony of the story of Jesus. The Lord Jesus Christ said the Holy Spirit does not even talk about himself. He only declares and reveals the things of Christ to his people. And that is a very good and accurate measure as far as I can understand to determine your own interest in Christ. The question that you have to ask yourself is, are you interested in Christ for your fleshly means to your own ends, or are we interested in Christ for his glory and for the story that God has been telling about him? And how do I know that I am interested in the story that God is interested in? There's only one way. You love the Christ of God. You love the gospel, the story of this beloved son of God. And there should be nothing else that should satisfy you beyond being found in Christ Jesus. The scriptures say, Christ is all and we are complete in him. So if you are in Christ, you lack nothing. You are 100% complete in him. And by that, God is saying there will never be anything that can make you complete outside Christ. It may appear for a minute that you may be made complete by doing something, but at the end of the day, you're going to realize that that was not enough. You can never be complete outside Christ himself. And this is the testimony and the understanding that Apostle Paul found out. And Philippians chapter 3 has just gotten to be a very favorite verse of mine, sorry, very favorite chapter of mine because Apostle Paul really lays out for us the heart of someone who has found the story of Christ. Someone who has understood the story of Christ. But if someone has understood what this is all about, they can't help but share the same testimony as what Apostle Paul shared with us in Philippians 3. And I'll just read from verses 8 to 14. And I won't make much commentary on them, but it's very important for us to always be reminded of that because I think the professing church world is moving away from that testimony of Christ. Philippians 3, 8 to 14, the apostle says, 
Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ my Lord. So that's the exchange. Everything is lost. Why Paul? Because of the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having my own righteousness which is from the law but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness which is from God by faith. So that's the knowledge of Christ. To count all things lost and to be found in him not having our own righteousness. Verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. So the longing is that I may know him, to know Christ. Not to know some things about Christ, but to know him. And I believe that is a prayer that God answers. He may give us some knowledge of Christ now, but he will answer that prayer in the fullness of time and we'll see Christ face to face. Verse 11, If by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead, not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to the things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward core of God in Christ Jesus. So Apostle Paul is telling us to long to know Christ. And he says, not that I have arrived myself, not that I am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. And I think this is what he's saying. He's saying Christ has already laid hold of me. <laughs> There's no question about that. My only problem is me. I am yet to lay hold of Christ the way that I'm supposed to lay hold of him. And for that reason, I press. I press. So we can't be shrinking back to all the things that are not Christ. We have to be pressing forward to lay hold of the upward core of God in Christ Jesus. So the excellence of the knowledge of Christ is very, very important. And that's essentially why we get together. We are not improving our salvation by getting together. Our salvation is already done, but we get together that we may grow in the knowledge of the excellence of the person and work of Christ. And Apostle Paul says, there is an unsurpassed excellence and joy of knowing Christ. Not knowing about Christ, but knowing Christ. An excellence and joy to know not about the God of the Bible, but the God of the Bible. And many professing Christians do not know the God of the Bible. They know some things about him. They only know him as the God of love, but they do not know him as the sovereign one. 
the God of sovereign grace, the God of election according to grace, and they, although they profess to know him, they are opposed to the God of sovereign grace because he does not do things the way that we like him to do things. But we do not learn Christ that way. We do not learn God that way. And we should shrink from building on things that God has already destroyed. When we deny the sovereign grace of God, then we are building our own foundation. Those are things that God has already destroyed. Your foundation and my foundation, those are very weak foundations to hold anything that lasts forever. <laughs> but God has given us the foundation of Christ on which to build on. Okay, Build on the excellence of him because he is the sure foundation and everything else that is not built on his foundation shall be shaken and tested to see if it will stand. And so I was thinking as I was preparing this message and talking for myself, I have come to a position that I don't want to hear much about me when I'm hearing about Christ. If we are talking about me, I want to hear about me only as I stand in him. Only as I stand in him. I don't want to be doing other things for me by which I may build my own confidence outside what Christ has done. I want to hear about the story of Christ and what he has done for me. Why? Because the book that James could write does not have that many pages to write in. And I would rather be in the book of Jesus whose story has no end. His book has so many pages we won't be done. Even if you rip some out, you still won't be able to get done in the story of Christ. So my prayer is for me and for everyone who professes Christ, that we will continue to press on and that God will continue to work in us his will and that which is pleasing to him in every one of us. As Apostle Paul would say in Ephesians 4, 13 and 14, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, that is to a mature man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And when that happens, when there's that growth and maturity in the knowledge of the Son of God, you see, so the basis of our perfection and growth is in the Son of God, not in ourselves. But when that happens, or when that is happening in the life of the believer, Apostle Paul says that we should no longer be children, tossed to and fro, and carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of man, in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting or scheming, if you have a different translation. So our prayer to God has to be for the knowledge of the Son of God to be formed in us and the measure of the stature of Christ to be formed in you and I. I do not want to go back to the elementary and beggarly elements of the world, the religion of men, and to be enslaved by those things once again. 
and is there in the church. It comes in a lot of ministries, and they do sound like they are gospel preachers. They'll say grace, grace here, and gospel, gospel here. But when you go in, you realize that you have already been enslaved back to the elementary things. That's just how it happens. <laughs> Before you know it, you're already in the do not touch. Okay, do not feel. And Apostle Paul says in Galatians 4.19, My little children, for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you. Apostle Paul is laboring. You know what is happening in the Galatian church. They are going back. They are mixing Jesus and Judaism, mixing Jesus and works. And Apostle Paul is not very impressed by that. But he tells us that he was laboring for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you. And how is Christ formed in us? How was he laboring in the Galatian church or in the church in general? He was laboring by the preaching of Christ. That's how he was doing it. Christ is formed in us by learning the truth about him. And there's labor to it. It does not come cheap. It does not come easily. God does not just open your mind and dump the whole knowledge of Christ in your head. He does not do that. There's laboring to it. You cannot build a house without mortar, without lumber, without bricks. We also cannot grow in Christ unless we hear the gospel. We have to hear the gospel. And we know him through the gospel. And the gospel reveals to us the blessed hope of what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. And so as we continue to grow in that knowledge, Christ is formed in us. Because the gospel is what the Holy Spirit uses to build us. Okay. Now, the gospel is the story of our deliverance from the condemnation of death in Christ Jesus. And so this story, this story of Christ, was pictured by God in many ways, especially in the Old Testament. We're going to work the Old Testament background, and that was introduction. We're going to work the Old Testament background to what Zacharias was talking about. It's going to be brilliant. I promise you that. It's going to be good. It's going to be very good. And so this story of Jesus was pictured, was preached, was foreshadowed by God in many ways, in the Old Testament. It was preached in the tabernacle of meeting, the tent of meeting, among other places. But the whole tabernacle system was God's way of teaching us, teaching sinners how to approach him. The gospel is an issue of approach. <laughs> if an airplane approaches the runway wrongly, it will nose dive and will kill a lot of people. If the airplane cannot approach the runway correctly, it will cause trouble for the airplane and the passengers and all those people around the airport. Approach is very important in everything. The gospel teaches us the proper approach that we may land safely before a holy and righteous God. And the issue of salvation has to be understood as God has told the story, as God has defined the issue, 
if we are to hear the gospel as good news. We have to hear the gospel as sinners or else it is not the gospel that we are hearing. So we have to hear the gospel as sinners. It's a requirement for one to really believe the gospel. If you don't believe you're a sinner, then the gospel can never be the gospel. And whatever it is that we are hearing cannot be the gospel because we have not identified the problem. We have to define the problem as God defines it. Otherwise, what we end up believing as the gospel is not the gospel. We'll end up in the, Lord, Lord, didn't we cast out demons in your name? Did we not do many wonderful works in your name territory? You can still do wonderful works in the name of Jesus and still miss salvation. Why? Because people do not want to listen to what God is saying about salvation. People do not want their problem to be defined for them by God. They do not want a proper diagnosis of their sin and their inability to do anything acceptable before him. People want to do stuff, but doing stuff is not the proper way of safe lending. God has been very gracious to teach us the peaceful way of approach. God has been so gracious to tell us that he exists. <laughs> he has been so gracious to tell us that he is going to judge people. And he has been so gracious to tell us that he is going to be sending people to hell. But even more, he has been so gracious to give us the way of escape. And so sinners need to be taught how to approach a holy God or else he will kill them. God is holy and that has to mean something. It means you and I are not holy in ourselves. And if we are not holy as he is holy, he has no option but to kill us. If we do not follow the rules of approach, the rules of safe lending. And so the tabernacle system was God coming and saying, listen, before you begin to approach me, stop. Think about it. Stop. Stop and look around. Look at the tabernacle system. What was the first piece of furniture that was in the tabernacle? It was the altar of sacrifice. As soon as you entered the entryway, guess what? There was an altar. What was that for? For killing an acceptable sacrifice. The altar was the place of death, a place of flowing blood. God was saying blood had to be shed before any progress could be made towards the holy place and the holy of holies where his glory was, his Shekinah glory. God says, there has to be bloodletting on the altar, first and foremost, as the first step of approach. And guess what? The altar had to be specified by him and how it was to be constructed. Very important. Moses did not just come up with the dimensions. He did not come up with the plan. 
God told him everything that he had to do as far as the building of it, as far as the furniture and everything, the placement of it, everything was according to God's instruction. Exodus 20. Exodus 20, verses 24 and 26. God says to Moses, An altar of earth you shall make for me, and you shall sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I record my name, I will come to you and I'll bless you. And if you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stone. For if you use your tool on it, you have profaned it. Nor shall you go up by steps to my altar that your nakedness may not be exposed on it. Deuteronomy 27, 5 and 6. God says, Deuteronomy 27, 5 and 6. And there you shall build an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones you shall not use an iron tool on them. You shall build with whole stones the altar of the Lord your God and offer burnt offerings on it to the Lord your God. So God is giving very specific instructions on how the altar had to be made. They could not use their own tools to shape any of the stones. And he says, as soon as you do that, you have already defiled it. And Moses records for us and says the altar, basically, which means the raised place, the altar was a raised place. The place of sacrifice was raised from the ground as the cross of Christ was raised from the ground because the altar was a place of sacrifice and so the cross was also the place of sacrifice of Christ. And so the altars could not be decorated by the craftsmanship of man's hands. As the cross was not the idea of man, it was not the work of man, and man did not help Jesus to die. Man did not help Jesus in their own salvation. It's Christ who came to save his own people. You shall call him Jesus, and he shall save his people from their sins. God says, if men would do anything on the altar, they would defile the work of God. Why? Because our hands are unclean. Why? Because salvation is not of God and man. Salvation is of the Lord, said Jonah. God said, if one used an iron tool to build the altar, they had defiled it, they had profaned it, it was not good for anything. The atonement that one would make on such an altar could not atone for sin. So if you add your works to Christ, if you add your good works to Christ for salvation, you have profaned his perfect sacrifice. And so God gave very specific instructions on how the altar was to be made. He told Moses again in Exodus 27, 1-2. He said, You shall make an altar of acacia wood, five cubits long and five cubits wide. The altar shall be square 
and its height shall be three cubits. You shall make its horns on its four corners. Its horns shall be of one piece with it, and you shall overlay it with bronze. So God is teaching Israel how he has to be approached as the high priest and the priests were bringing sacrifices to him. He says, this is how you are going to make the altar. It's going to have four horns on every corner. Okay? And he specifies the material that they were to use. And somehow people get tired of this. <laughs> because God actually spent a lot of time giving Moses these instructions. Because his business has to be done his way, not our way. And the church is forgetting that salvation is God's business. And he has specified exactly how it has to be done. Salvation is very specific work. And we have to hear what God says about it. About what God says about his son. And so God says the altar was supposed to have horns. And the horns were on all four corners of the altar. They were to be on all four corners. And these horns had many functions. Again, remember, the title of our sermon is the horn of salvation. And these horns had many functions. Psalm 118, 27. Psalm 118, 27 says, God is the Lord, and he has given us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. And so, the sacrifice was bound to the altar through the horns. And remember, the Lord Jesus Christ was the sacrifice that is being talked about. He is the sacrifice that died. How? He was sacrificed on the horns of the altar, tied to the horns of the altar of the cross, nailed to the cross. That's the binding of the sacrifice. But not only that. The altar also served as a place of refuge or as a sanctuary for those who had gotten in trouble and were seeking immunity from being killed. This was another of God's provision together with the city of refuge. In the city of refuge, if you still remember, one who had accidentally killed a man, the manslayer, could flee there and find refuge and be spared of death. But they were set free only on one condition. On only one condition. They could not pay their way out. And no one could pay for them to be set free. God said, and he said it two or three times. In Numbers 35. They only get set free on the death of the high priest anointed with oil. So the city of refuge was a sanctuary for one who was facing death. And so too was the altar. A lot of people are not aware of that function of the altar. The altar provided a shorter and temporary provision for refuge for one who was in trouble, one whose life was also in danger because someone wanted to kill them. One could also run and grab the hands of the altar, and this provided immunity to the one who had laid their hands on it. And remember, these were just shadows and pictures of the work of Christ. And so when you read these stories, 
do not read them as permanent provisions, but only as snapshots or pictures of the reality that is in Christ Jesus. Turn to 1 Kings 1, chapter 1, verses 50 to 53. 1 Kings 1, verses 50 to 53. 1 Kings 1, verses 50 to 53. Now Adonijah was afraid of Solomon, so he arose and went and took hold of the horns of the altar. And it was told Solomon, saying, Indeed, Adonijah is afraid of King Solomon, For look, he has taken hold of the horns of the altar, saying, Let King Solomon swear to me today that he would not put his servant to death with the sword. Then Solomon said, If he proves himself a worthy man, not one hair of him shall fall to the earth, but if wickedness is found in him, he shall die. So King Solomon sent them to bring him down from the altar, and he came And fell down before King Solomon. And Solomon said to him, Go to your house. Go to your house. Exodus 21, 12 to 14. God says, He who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. However, if he did not lie in wait, but God delivered him into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place where he may flee. God says, I will appoint a place that someone can go and flee. But if a man acts with premeditation against his neighbor to kill him by treachery, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. So what is all that saying? I don't know how much you recall of the story of Adonijah and what had actually happened before he ran to seek refuge in the tabernacle. Adonijah was one of King David's sons with another wife. Remember, King David had a lot of wives. And King David was getting very old and getting ready to die. And there was need for him to appoint a successor. And God had already said Solomon was going to take over from his father. But Adonijah, being older than Solomon, determined him and his group of friends to stage a coup and appoint himself as the king of Israel, of Israel and Judah. So Adonijah and his gang gathered together and they made sacrifices and anointed Adonijah king of Israel and Judah. And they did not invite Nathan the prophet. They did not invite Solomon. But Nathan the prophet heard about the story and what had happened And so he went and told Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, and said, guess what? Your life is in danger. If Adonijah becomes king, as I am hearing, Solomon is dead and you are dead. So you go and tell King David that this is what has happened and tell him to go and anoint Solomon as the king of Israel. So Bathsheba goes to King David and she tells King David of what was happening. And King David says, no, get Solomon on my mule and anoint him the king of Israel right away, like today. And 
Nathan the prophet also had told Bathsheba that as soon as you get to the king, I am right behind you. I'm going to come as the second witness and say, yes, king, that is true. And Solomon needs to be anointed king right away. So King David really gets mad. <laughs> and he basically just puts his promise, sorry, his blessing on Solomon. And he gives permission for his mule to be used by Solomon as he is anointed king of Israel. So do you see even Jesus making the triumphal entry? And when this happens, the news get to, they had CNN then, I don't know. The news get to Adonijah that, oh, by the way, David has appointed Solomon as king. And Adonijah is so afraid. He's so afraid because he knows that he had just committed treason and had to die. And so he took off running and guess where he went? He went and grabbed the horns of the altar. That's what is happening. And so when Solomon sends for him, guess where Adonijah is? He is holding on tightly to the horns of the altar because he knows that that's God's provision for immunity. So running and grabbing hold of the altar was God's appointed means of granting immunity to someone who had mistakenly gotten in trouble, but not Adonijah though. <laughs> Adonijah was abusing the system. Okay. It was not for people who had by premeditation committed sin. Like what Joab, remember Joab was the army commander, if I recall well. Joab also was part of the gang of Adonijah. So Joab had together with Adonijah plotted to stage a coup against Solomon. And Joab actually gets killed. In 1 Kings chapter 2, he gets killed. And so did Adonijah. Adonijah was killed for a different reason, but connected to the first reason. Adonijah sends Bathsheba to King Solomon and says, well, you go and speak to the king for me because I can't speak to the king given what I've done. <laughs> you go speak to the king and tell him that I want a certain woman. And Bathsheba agreed to do that and she goes to Solomon and she asks for the woman on behalf of Adonijah. And Solomon gets crazy mad. And he says, today Adonijah has been put to death. He is asking for this woman, plus he has been wanting to take away the kingship away from me. So he has to die. And even Job also in the next chapter of First Kings, uh, that would be First Kings chapter 2, Job also ran and he grabbed hold of the horns, but the king still said he has to die. <laughs> and Job was killed. Okay. So the horns of the, of the altar were a provision for immunity for genuine cases and not those that would want to abuse the system. It was a means of grace as was the city of refuge and it was not to be abused. I'll read this again. Exodus 21, 12 to 14. God said, he who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. That's premeditation. However, if he did not lie in wait, but God delivered him into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place where he may flee. God says, 
if you kill a man because I caused you to kill him, <laughs> then you're off the hook. And this is the way that I'm going to do. I'll give you a provision for immunity. Okay? This is diplomatic immunity. <laughs> this is a red passport. But if a man acts with premeditation against his neighbor to kill him by treachery, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. So what is God saying? God is saying what Apostle Paul says in Romans 6. Shall we sin the more that grace may abound? Now that we are under grace, shall we sin the more? And the Apostle Paul says, may it never be. Shall we continue to kill more people because we have the provision of the horns of the altar? God says, no, that's not how it's going to work. And so the gospel is not a ministry of sin, but God's gracious provision of salvation for his people. So we don't encourage or promote sin just because God has given us a provision to forgive our sins. But the fact that God still had that provision also means even as a believer, we still fall into sin. And when we fall into sin and we are not premeditating to continuously sin and continue to do some things that we know are clearly wrong, God says there's a provision for you. Come boldly to the throne of grace that you may find help in the time of need. And John, Apostle John would say, when you sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And so if anyone was following God's rules, they would have understood that one who had run to seek immunity on the altar by grabbing its horns needed protection. They needed protection. And so the altar did provide temporary immunity because it was only but a shadow of Christ himself. Now let's talk more, a little bit more about horns and then we'll go to our text. Actually, we are not going to spend that much time in our text, but we're going to spend a lot of time in the background. Let's hear more what the Bible says about horns. <laughs> there, there are many things that the Bible says about horns. The horns of the altar were sacred because they were anointed. They were anointed with the blood of the most precious sacrifices that God had commanded the high priests to bring. They were the most sacred part of the altar. Okay? The horns were the most sacred part of the altar. Leviticus 4.25 And the priest shall take of the blood of the sin offering with his finger and put it upon the horns of the altar of burnt offering and shall pour out his blood at the bottom of the altar of burnt offering. And so when Israel when Aaron the high priest and Moses began the tabernacle ministry, guess what they began by doing? They began with the anointing of these horns. The horns of the altar had to be anointed for the ministry of the tabernacle to start. Leviticus 8.15 And he slew it and Moses took the blood and put it upon the horns of the altar round about with his finger and purified the altar and poured the blood at the bottom of the altar and sanctified it to make reconciliation upon it. Okay, So the altar had to be sanctified. It had to be 
purified by the sprinkling of blood on the horns. Leviticus 9.9 And the sons of Aaron brought the blood unto him and he dipped his finger in the blood and put it upon the horns of the altar and poured out the blood at the bottom of the altar. But here, what the Bible also says about the horns of the altar. When the horns of the altar were removed, that also removed the power of the sacrifice to make atonement. If you had an altar without horns, whatever you sacrifice on it did not have any power to make atonement for sin. Amos 3, 14. God says, That in the day that I shall visit the transgressions of Israel upon him, I will also visit the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. The horns of the altar shall be cut off. And what that means, that's figurative language. To say those horns will not be able to grant immunity anymore. They don't have any more power or strength to make atonement for sin. The cutting of the horns signified the removal of the power of deliverance. The ability to grant refuge or to act as a sanctuary for one who was facing death. And God says, when I come in judgment, I'm going to cut off those horns that you may not have any immunity. And with that understanding, Second Samuel 22, 1-7, King David says, Second Samuel 22, verse 1-7, King David says, Then David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord had delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And he said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. Listen to chapter, sorry, verse 3. The God of my strength in whom I will trust my shield and the horn of my salvation. My stronghold and my refuge, my savior, you save me from violence. And verse 3 defines for us what the horn of salvation was supposed to do. It is a shield, a stronghold, a place of refuge. It saves one from violence, and that is death. And that is from one's enemies. And David says, continuing on, in verse 4, I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, so I shall be saved from my enemies. When the waves of death surrounded me, the floods of ungodliness made me afraid of his own sin. He was afraid and death had encompassed around him. The sorrows of Sheol surrounded me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried out to my God and he heard me. He heard him. So he cried out to God as his horn of salvation. And so with all that background, we enter into Zechariah's prophecy. Zechariah, we are in Luke 1, 67 to 79. Luke 1, verse 67 to 69. Zechariah, as I said, 
was the father of John the Baptist. Zechariah is a Levite. He is a priest. He serves in the temple. And so he knows very well the language and function of horns in the temple ministry. He knows. And so after God had loosed his tongue, remember he lost his voice, after God had come to him and loosed his tongue and full of the Holy Spirit, he began to prophesy and say, verse 67 of Luke 1, Now his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, And that is what happens when one is filled with the Holy Spirit. When they prophesy, they do not speak foolishness. They speak the word of God. They speak about Christ. They speak about Christ and his gospel. You see the pattern? Remember what I said in the introduction. It is all about Christ. And if we claim to have the Holy Spirit, we speak about the things of Christ. So listen to what the Holy Spirit spoke through Zechariah. Verse 68. Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and redeemed his people. The Holy Spirit began by blessing the Lord God of Israel. He is the most prosperous of all, and that's the best, the, the, the understanding of blessing, is being spiritually prosperous. It's not saying having all the things that money can buy, <laughs> as what we've been made to understand. That's not what the Holy Spirit is saying. The Holy Spirit is not saying God has a lot of money to buy himself things or he has a lot of money to buy as many nice cars as he can buy. That's not what he's being said. He is blessing the Lord because he has visited us, his people, and he has redeemed his people. He has come and not just made salvation possible, but he actually finished the salvation of his people. And see, that is in the past tense. He says he has visited and he has redeemed his people. Who is this who is the God of Israel who redeemed his people? It is Jesus Christ. It is Jesus Christ who is the God of Israel. It is he who has visited in the person of Christ and redeemed his people. What did the angel say? We shall call him Jesus and he shall save his people from their sins. Now the question again is, did Jesus Christ redeem his people or not? Because a lot of people will say not really unless we give the tenth. Not really unless we, no. The text says he redeemed his people. He actually accomplished our salvation. We do not finish our own salvation by our own striving. The gospel according to Zechariah says, verse 69, He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. So God has not only redeemed his people, he has also raised a horn of salvation for his people. And that sounds like Zechariah knows something about horns. He knows something about the altar. He knows something about particular redemption. He says this horn of salvation was for us, his people, and not for everyone. For us who were chosen of God in Christ. 
And he says, this horn of salvation is not from the line of Mohammed. It is of the seed of David. Jesus Christ is the descendant of David. He is the son of David according to the flesh. And God did not raise a good example in the house of David, but a horn of salvation. Why horn of salvation? Because this redeemer is God. Jesus Christ is God himself. And anyone who seeks refuge in him shall not be ashamed. And anyone who seeks refuge in him cannot be killed. They cannot be killed. He is the horn of salvation. Remember what David said in 1 Samuel 22. He said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, the God of my strength in whom I will trust my shield and the horn of my salvation. My stronghold and my refuge, my savior, you save me from violence. And this is Jesus doing all this for his people. Zechariah says, God has raised the horn of salvation. Horn of salvation. Why? Because he is the only one who can be touched. Like the woman with the issue of blood. The woman with the issue of blood, she went and sought the help of many physicians. But she could not get help. Until what happened? Until she came and grabbed a hold of the horn of salvation, Jesus Christ. And she was healed. And that was salvation. That was a picture of salvation. So this one is he who can be tied and grants eternal immunity and security to a sinner. Security from judgment and he grants life and when things are bad your life is in danger there's no time to make amends Adonijah did not have time to do anything he only had time to run and lay his hands on the altar there's only time to run and grab the horn of the altar and judgment is stayed and there's no time to work enough good works to be saved by them. We don't have much time. The day is far spent. It's too late for us to start working as to be accepted by God. It's just too late. And our enemies are already surrounding us. And they seek our life. This is an emergent situation. Salvation is an emergent situation. A lot of people don't treat it like that. And that's why the writer of Hebrews says, as it is called today, Today, not tomorrow, not next week. Today, do not harden your hearts. Okay? Why? Because this is an emergency situation. There's no time to obey the law until we are good. Christ already obeyed the law for us. The gospel says God has raised Jesus up as the horn of salvation that those who run to him and grab hold of him by faith will be saved. See that salvation of the one who sought refuge lied in their laying their hand on the horns. They had to go and grab the horn. The immunity was not granted because of how tightly they held to the horn, but by the fact that they were on the right altar 
and they were holding the horns. <laughs> and the horns were enough to provide immunity. The power was in, not in the person holding. The power of salvation was in the horns that they were holding. So the power of salvation is not in our running, it's not in our effort, the power is in the blood of Christ. It is he who saves us. And so the security of our salvation is not in our own strength or our perceived weakness because sometimes we are weak and we start to question ourselves and say, maybe I'm not saved. But now when you do that, you're now looking to how tightly you're holding and not to whom you are holding. See also that if you grab the horns for salvation, it means your hands cannot hold anything else. I could not be holding a Bible and try to hold to this microphone stand. For me to hold the horns, my hands have to come empty. To hold the horns, you have to have empty hands. And so when you and I come to Christ, guess what we bring? We bring empty hands. We bring nothing, no works or righteousness of our own to prove our own case. We only come by faith. We hold by faith. So faith comes with empty hands that it may lay its hand on the horns. So your faith is that if I come and run to this horn, it is enough to keep your enemies away. The horn is what keeps your enemies away. It is the horn that is the power. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. So you are just holding your dear life to the horn. Verse 70 of Luke 1. Zechariah says, As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, who have been since the world began. So the coming of the horn of salvation is what was prophesied. By the holy prophets. This is the gospel that is according to the scriptures. But what was the purpose of this horn of salvation? Zechariah, verse 71. Listen to what he says, verse 71. That we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. The horn of salvation that was on the altar was to save one from their enemies, whoever sought their life. Because their life was in danger and so they ran to grab hold of it. And so Jesus Christ came and fulfilled what these ones and what this altar stood for and delivered us from our enemies of sin, of death, of God's judgment, even of the power of the devil who hates us even today. Verse 72, to perform the promise, sorry, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham. So this horn of salvation came to perform mercy. It came to perform the work of grace to bring salvation that God promised to our fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the holy covenant. The Abrahamic covenant. So God has tied himself to his covenants to bring us the horn of salvation. And the beauty of the gospel is that our salvation is maintained by God's own faithfulness to himself. Not our faithfulness 
to him because if it were up to us, guess what? By the end of this sermon, you'll be like, no, I don't want this anymore. <laughs> so Jesus performed our salvation. The text said he performed the mercy. So Jesus performed our salvation. And that is why it is not acceptable to teach otherwise or to believe otherwise. Verse 74, to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might save him without fear. The horn of salvation delivered us from the hand of our enemies that sought to kill us. The judgment of condemnation that sought to send us to hell. Jesus Christ delivered us from the hand of our enemies. The law was our enemy because we could not do it. The problem was not the law, the problem was us. Because of sin, we could not give the law what the law demanded. And Jesus became a curse for us and he removed the curse of the law that was on us on the cross. So Jesus finished our salvation. And we were those who were in fear of death because of sin, but by his deliverance, we now save him without fear. For we are not of fear. We have the Holy Spirit of God, right? People have fear. Why? Because they do not have the Holy Spirit. And the testimony of the Holy Spirit in his people is that Christ is enough. Christ has delivered them from their enemies. And people also lack assurance in salvation because they don't listen to what God says about his own son. They don't listen to what he says about this one of salvation. They want to listen to themselves and be told of things that they can do to affirm or confirm their own salvation instead of what Christ has done in himself. Listen to verse 75. In holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life, so we are to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our lives. But whose holiness and righteousness? Where do we get the holiness and righteousness that we can use to serve God without fear? First Corinthians 1 Corinthians 1.30 Apostle Paul writes and he says, But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification. And sanctification there is holiness and redemption. So Christ has become all these things to us. And this is who we are. And that is the basis of us being able to approach God and to serve him without fear of condemnation that oh oops I should have done that but I forgot I hopefully God is not mad at me <laughs> the one who has come and grabbed hold of the altar and the horns of Christ has the righteousness and holiness of Christ that is how God sees them it doesn't matter how they see themselves God sees them in Christ so how do I know that I have grabbed the horns of the right order? According to Zechariah, you have no fear. You have no fear. You have no fear and we have no confidence in the flesh. We only stand on the righteousness and holiness of Christ. Verse 76 of Luke 1. 
And you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest or the prophet of the most high, depending on your translation. For you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways. So now Zechariah goes to his son, John the Baptist, and the Holy Spirit tells us what the mission of John the Baptist was. It was to prepare the way for the Lord. So Jesus Christ is not just coming as the descendant of David. He is also coming as God in the flesh. Okay. So verse 77, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins. The knowledge of salvation. So the preaching of the gospel is to bring the knowledge of salvation to his people. To his people. And his people who believe when they hear the knowledge of how God has provided salvation in Christ, they will hear it and they will believe it. And they will run and they will grab hold of the order. So the knowledge of the gospel is the remission of God's people of their sins. The gospel message is not just an empty message. The message of the gospel there is, it is a message of the remission of sins. And the remission means cancellation. Cancellation of their sins. So the gospel message gives knowledge of the cancellation of your sin debt by the sacrifice that was given on Mount Calvary. And so, the touching of the horns of the altar was also meant as a type and shadow of the cancellation of the sin of the one who had run to seek refuge. Verse 78. We know that we are done when we get to verse 79, which we are just a few lines away. Verse 78. Through the tender mercy of our God, with which the day spring from on high has visited us. Do you see? If your translation, your day spring is capitalized. Has visited us. So this cancellation of our sin was by the tender mercy of our God. And that is to say, it was by the grace of God. We did not deserve for our sins to be put in remission. We use in medicine, the language of cancer is in remission. When cancer is in remission, it means it's there, but it's doing nothing to the person. So we, our sins are in remission in Christ. We still sin, but our sin does nothing to us. Our sin does not remove us from our justification in Christ. Our sins are in remission, even though on a day-to-day basis, you can find out that James is still a sinner. But because of this horn of salvation, my sin does not have the final say on me. It is the horns that I'm holding on to that have the final say of my standing before God. And listen to this. The death spring has been sent from on high. He has visited us. But to do what? Verse 79. To give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. The day spring, the dawning of the day with the light of the gospel. It is by the gospel that light has come. 
you who were sitting in darkness and in the shadow of death. You see, there's no light there. You're sitting in darkness or in the shadow. And, and what is the common thing between the darkness and the shadow? Both have no light. <laughs> so, this day spring has come to bring light, the light of the gospel. To those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death. And that is the condition of all men as sinners before the coming of Christ. Before the giving of the Holy Spirit. Unless a man be born again, guess what? They still sit in darkness. And they are in the shadow of death. And everyone who is not yet to believe the gospel, they are sitting in darkness. But the desperate, the Lord Jesus Christ has come to do what? To guide our feet into the way of peace. He has come to guide our feet into the way of peace. Why Jesus? Because our feet need to be guided. <laughs> our feet need to be guided. Otherwise, we just be stepping on all kinds of things on landmines, all things that kill us. Because we are walking in darkness. We are in darkness. So we don't know how to walk before God. So this day spring has brought the light to guide our feet that we may know how to walk before God. And the gospel is that guardrail for our feet into the peace of God. We need the peace of God and it's only by Christ, his gospel and his guiding that we can have peace with God. And you and I constantly need to be guided back. Otherwise, we veer off. Remember, the road is narrow and is straight. And we have the tendency to veer off into the broad way of works righteousness. It's very easy. So Christ has to keep us in the narrow. He has to guide us. We stray, as we sang earlier, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Right? We are prone to wander. We always stray into those things that build the flesh, but that is a straying into the way of destruction. And when you and I stray, we stray into those things that make us feel like we are being righteous. We stray into those things that are good to the touch, to the things that smell good. But before you know it, you are already gone. And that is why we need Jesus. We need Jesus every day. <laughs> we need to hear the gospel. You can never say, I've heard too much of the gospel. You can never hear too much of Jesus. We can preach this sermon again after we've had lunch and you still sound different. I'm serious. You go, oh, I never heard that. <laughs> Did you just come up with that? <laughs> and so as we partake of the Lord's table, we have to ask ourselves the question, where is our hope? Whose horns are we holding to for our hope? And do we even have any horns on the altar that we are holding on to? Because God said, or oh, I'll come and I'll cut off those horns. So are we still holding on an altar that is horns or we are holding on an altar that is no horns? And if we are making sacrifices, on whose altar are we making the sacrifices? There are no horns to hold on to 
on the order of works. There are just no horns. There's no salvation in doing, my friends. We should know who we are. We should know that we are sinners and we have enemies that encompass around us to destroy us. We have sin as our biggest problem. And as sinners, we should know that we have an altar problem and a horn problem. And we have many enemies. So I have come to tell you or to remind you about the horns of the altar that is Christ Jesus. That you may run there and find help in the time of need. And may Jesus alone be your horn of salvation by faith alone. And if Jesus is not your horn alone, if Jesus did not finish his work, you have no hope. God is going to cut off all the other horns that you may be holding on to, that he may expose you to sin and death and condemnation. But he who has run to seek refuge in Christ shall not be ashamed. And that's the hope of the gospel. And that's the gospel that we preach. Praise the Lord. That was the horn of salvation. That was the mystery of the horn of salvation. And see how just wonderful a teacher God is. He preaches Christ in just a million ways. To preach the same message over and over and over and over. Because he, he knows that we are hard of hearing. So praise the Lord for his faithfulness. Okay.